Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Wall me in, Lord. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. You know my heart. You see my wandering ways. You know the dangers that lurk on every side. Before I stray too far, block my path. Keep me in the way of life. Let me feel the healing sting of your correction, Lord that I might not feel the cold and devastating outcome of my own folly. Then may I look up and see your loving eyes and hear your voice saying, This is the way. Walk in it. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her nakedness. Here I am, Lord. I present my life, my gifts, my body to you. May they become instruments of your righteousness. All that I have was first the gift of your grace. Forgive me for taking your good gifts and squandering them on myself. In the name of freedom, I have used my hands and skills on pursuits that dishonor you. I have become fruitless and empty in the end. Receive me once again, Lord. By the power of your spirit, use my life and gifts in your service and for your glory. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Lord, I confess that I have been the wandering, unfaithful one. My heart has been enticed by so many glittering illusions. But your amazing love will not let me go. Instead, you lead me to the wilderness. One by one, you take away the illusions and reveal to me for what they are. The empty world that I have created falls down around me. Lead me once again to the place where I may hear the tender call of your love. By your grace, renew my heart to sing your praise with all the zeal of my first love. Good morning. It's good to be together. I have a bad heart. Physically, that's definitely true. (laughs) Had a heart attack in 2000. Cardiologist tells me that I have a heart murmur, so I have a leaky valve that may need work at some point. 
I have occasional ventricular tachycardia, VTAC. So I've been told I may need a, a, a defibrillator, maybe a pacemaker someday. I have a bad heart. <laughs> but more than that, I have a spiritually bad heart. And by the way, so do you. <laughs> Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Romans chapter 3, that powerful passage where Paul quotes the Old Testament to speak to our own hearts. He says, this is uh, Romans 3 verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we're, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Every one of us, even if we know Jesus and have His Spirit dwelling in us, have a bent, a, a leaning, a, a tendency to curve away from God to other things. Like a, a, a golfer who can't get rid of his slice or his hook. You never can quite hit the fairway. That's true for every one of us. Like we sang a few moments ago, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. So we look elsewhere to satisfy our hearts. Our hearts are hungry and thirsty, but we look to other lovers, as this passage describes it, and we leave God behind. Now, most of the time, we can ignore our errant hearts. We can avoid thinking about it, so we just cruise on in life, feeling like we're doing okay. But God loves us too much to let us keep wandering off the path to keep going our own way, to keep loving other things more than Him. He loves us too much to let us keep mucking around in the garbage of selfishness and the junk that this world offers us when He offers us real life and security in Himself. In our passage today, we see four gifts that God gives us. Four gifts so that we might come to Him and actually know Him more and more as our true lover, as our true life, to bring us out of our lostness and to keep us from wandering away from Him. His gifts are wonderful, but often painful, but they are truly His gifts of love to bring us back to Him. Heavenly Father, as we approach this deep and powerful passage in Hosea, chapters 2 and 3. May you reveal our wandering hearts. May we see more clearly than ever before what our hearts are really like. And may we see you more clearly than ever in your great love and pursuit of us so that we might trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Powerful and precious name. Amen. Well, in 2000, when I woke up at 3 in the morning and I 
began realizing something was wrong and I felt this pressure on my chest. So I got out the HealthWise book and began looking at symptoms. I thought, wow, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. So I finally woke up Jeannie. We went into the emergency room and they said, yeah, you know, guys your age, it's usually, it's usually just indigestion. But they hooked me up to an EKG and they immediately panicked when they realized I was having a heart attack. But they had to make the proper diagnosis before they could deal with the problem. And Hosea begins this passage, chapter 2, by giving us the diagnosis so that we can see what our hearts are really like so that we can get to the help that we really need. Let me read first few verses starting in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Hosea. Plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. And then in verse 5 he gives the diagnosis. For their mother has played the whore, has been a harlot, has been unfaithful, has been an adulterer. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil and my drink. Some of us are shocked by the graphicness of those words. They are graphic. But God wants to shock us a bit with, with a sense of how much He loves us and how important our relationship is to Him. You see, it's far more important to Him than following a bunch of rules or other things. He, he wants our hearts. So He says, Israel, my nation, is adulterous. They're leaving God to try to find satisfaction in something else. As Israel says, I will go after my lovers. Think about that. Usually a prostitute, a harlot, will stand on a street corner and wait for someone to come pick her up. But not our wayward hearts, not Israel's wayward heart. He says, I'll go after my lovers. I'll chase them down. I'll find somebody to satisfy me. And notice what she's after. She's after the basic things of life. Food, clothing, the, the, the basic pleasures of life. Thinking, I can get those satisfied somewhere else other than God and I will pursue other lovers. It's an indication of our hearts when we pursue God's blessings more than we pursue God. So her heart is turned away from her husband, is the picture here, to seek other things that will give her what she wants. She does not trust her husband to provide her with those things, so she takes it in her own hands to get those. And a little later in the passage, it talks about how she was pursuing Baal, the nation of Israel pursuing Baal. What, what's he talking about here? What's, what's the worship of Baal look like? Well, Remember, Israel came into the land and they were to wipe out all the Canaanites so they could have a fresh start and worship Yahweh. But they didn't do that. 
So in the land, they're surrounded by Canaanites who worship the god Baal. Baal was considered the storm god, the god who controlled the rains and the fertility god. So the way the Canaanites would do it is they, would, they had this myth that during the dry season, when everything dried up, Baal was dead or asleep. He'd been defeated by another god, Mot. And so if you wanted to have a good, fertile, rainy season, you needed to somehow find a way to wake up Baal. And so they came up with all these rituals to think, okay, what would Baal want? What, what would excite him? So they would have ritual uh, prostitutes. They think, well, well, that'll bring fertility. That'll get him excited. They would bring offerings of food and drink. At times they would say, I'll even sacrifice my son. And they had child sacrifice because they thought, maybe that'll get him excited if we give enough to even give our own child to him. And so the Canaanites followed this Baal religion to try to somehow get fertile lives to get their basic needs met. So the rains would come and Baal would respond. They were trying to get him to listen. Remember the, the whole event where Elijah on Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal are trying to wake up Baal somehow to get him to respond, cutting themselves, yelling, screaming, doing all kinds of strange things to wake up their God to get what they want. Well, the Israelites came into the promised land and they thought we're going to worship Yahweh but in the northern kingdom of course they didn't have the temple so they set up these golden calves and then they thought look at our neighbors you know they're doing certain things to try to get fertility and yeah we'll worship Yahweh our way but we'll also worship Baal we'll make sure our bases are covered because they wanted to get the wheat the flax the food, the wine, etc., to make their lives prosperous and healthy. And Israel would also turn to other nations if they were afraid of a military attack by someone. They would send money, send gold, send silver to Egypt or other places to say, hey, help us, help us. In other words, they were doing all these things to pursue and depend on other things besides God. And it was breaking God's heart. It's a powerful image, I think, of our hearts as well, every one of us. God has redeemed us. He bought us by his death when sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. And God has promised to meet our needs. He wants us to trust him and know him as our one and only that we trust in. And yet, with that bent of our hearts, we think, well, I'll worship God, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll do a few things, but, but I'll also make sure I've got enough money in the bank account, I'll make sure I do this and that, I'll, uh, there's these other things I need if I am going to be okay and be prosperous in life. So we doubt his goodness and we pursue other lovers. What are some of those lovers? Well, one, of course, is the one I just mentioned. In fact, in our culture, it's probably the dominant one is money. And yet we're not even aware of it. We live in perhaps the most affluent society ever. And the world throws at us these ads constantly of, if you really want to be happy, prosperous, have a fulfilled life, you need to buy this car, you need to drink this beer, 
You need to have these investments. You need to take this pill, etc. And, you know, we're too smart. We're not fooled by that, right? We're not going to run out and buy that car. But we get brainwashed by those ads, by that way of thinking. Yeah, maybe we won't buy that car. But we begin to think, but there are things we need. I do need a big bank account. I do need to be secure financially. And the real test is when you lose it, right? We think, well, I'm not, I don't really trust in money. I just, you know, I'm just being wise, right? Well, yeah, there's wisdom there. I understand that. But what happens when the stock market drops a few hundred points or you lose your job or something else happens, you begin to panic, right? I've been there. And it begins to reveal in your heart that you're trusting way too much in that than in God who has promised to meet your needs. We, we pursue another lover. And what does Jesus say about that? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, he makes it really, really clear where he says in verse 24, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either you'll hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And over in chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, he says, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those are powerful words. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, For the love of money is the root of is a root of all kinds of evil. And we, didn't even, we aren't even aware of it most of the time of what another lover that is. What are some of the other lovers that we tend to depend on in our lives, in our culture? Well, self. Self. We want to be in control of our lives, right? And we put self on the throne rather than God. God can be in the room, <laughs> just not on the throne. Status. We want to look good in other people's eyes. I confess, part of me is terrified of being thought ill of. What is that? And God in His grace keeps putting me in positions where I fail and other people know it, and yet there's part of me that still holds on to that lover even though I know it and I, and I repent of it. Other gods are education or power, position, our own comfort. We want to be comfortable and so it becomes a God that consumes everything. I think the reason many of our young people are, are violating sexual standards and sleeping together is because they've been told in the world that you need sex, you need comfort, you should feel good all the time and they have bought into that other lover. A spouse we're terrified to lose. The government. Our ministry. A child. You could go on and on. There's many lovers that we tend to put our trust in other than God. Almost anything can be an alternative lover. Maybe one of the ways to think about this or to discern what may be yours is what are you terrified to lose? What are you afraid 
will mess up your life if you don't have it. So our hearts are wandering off constantly. And God portrays himself in this passage as a jilted lover whose spouse has run away and is an adulterer. And God could just divorce us for good. We deserve it. But instead, he pursues our hearts and he gives us these four gifts that the passage goes on to explain. But first, we need to be gripped by the reality of our wayward hearts. The first gift he gives us in our waywardness is the gift of hedges. Verse 6 says this, Therefore, she says, I'll go after my lovers, I'll go my own way. Therefore, I will. Three times in this passage, therefore I will, therefore I will. Starting in verse 6, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Do you get the description there? It's like God puts us in a maze and, and everywhere we turn we just can't seem to find our way out. We can't carry out the path that we think we need to have life. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. See, Israel kept going after Baal and other things, but God kept blocking the way to hedge her in so that she would see that God is the one providing all these things for her. And God does the same for us. He gives us the gift of hedges. And we've all experienced this if we've walked with the Lord very long at all. You, you think you need something to happen and you're intent on it and you're going to make that happen and then somehow God closes the door and you end up frustrated. It's a gift of God's love. A graphic illustration of this is a friend of mine, dear friend from college who really felt like what she needed and what her family kept telling her to be was a doctor. And she was convinced, that's what I need to be, is a doctor. And so at Stanford University, she was a good student. She passed all the classes. She did advanced chemistry courses, but she could not pass the most basic chemistry course, Chem 31. So she took it again. She flunked, failed, failed, failed. She took it at least seven times. I'm thinking it was eight and she flunked it every time. God just closed the door. She ended up going into working with a nonprofit in an inner city area, California, and she's still working there and doing great work for the Lord. But she was intent, this is what I need, and God put up a hedge and closed the door. I've had several times in my life that I thought, this is where life is. This is where fulfillment comes from. I remember after I graduated from seminary, I thought, man, if I could be on staff at Peninsula Bible Church, I would have it made. Or later in my life, when I went through a counseling program and they were picking interns to work with them the next year, I thought, oh, if I get chosen as an intern, I'd really, really have it made. And God just shut those doors both times and many other times in my life because of his love he puts up hedges to block 
our way or a single person who's convinced that marriage is the way to life and yet the, it keeps getting blocked and you hurt and it's frustrating and yet it's a gift of the Lord because he wants to give us more than what we're pursuing. We all pursue things we think will make us whole or happy or fulfilled and God in his love blocks the way, closes the door with the gift of hedges. And I want you to notice verse 8. She did not know that it was I, God, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Israel didn't realize that it was God who was blessing them. Not all their efforts to try to get Baal to come through or to make something else happen. And we're the same way. We are so ignorant, we misinterpret life. And we think... It's our work, it's our efforts, it's what we've done that make life good. And God hedges us in to help us see that that isn't true. The gift of hedges is a wonderful gift to help us turn back to him. And the next gift is too, it's the gift of poverty. Verse 9 and following. Notice verse 9. Therefore I will, because she doesn't get it, She's pursuing other lovers. Therefore, I will, verse 9, take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were used to cover her nakedness. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers so that no one will rescue her out of my hand. I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said... These are my wages, which my lovers have given to me, and on and on. The gift of poverty. God says to Israel, you're pursuing these things you think will satisfy your heart more than me, and therefore I will give you the gift of poverty. I will take them away. I'll take away the very things you're pursuing to find life, your grain, your wine, your feasts, your partying and on and on. The things she thinks she's earned by doing certain things, by following these rituals to bail. Or we think by working hard or climbing the corporate ladder or manipulating friendships or studying my Bible more. Or whatever it is we think gets us what we want. And God takes away the satisfaction in those things. The gift of poverty is where nothing really satisfies anymore. Sex and other things have this law of diminishing returns where you, you need more and more because it's less and less satisfying. That's really a gift of God. So you begin to see none of this is really what I need. A drive for being in shape is waylaid by an injury. We have health issues. We have financial struggles and on and on. God gives us the gift of poverty so we're kind of stripped down to very little except him. God takes away what we think we need to be happy and it hurts. I've asked a dear friend of mine to come up and share some of his story, Mark Van Skyver, so you can hear some of his story of how God has done that with him. Mark? Happy Father's Day, dads. And to the rest of you, thanks for putting up with us. 
Uh, Thirteen years ago, I suffered a ruptured disc in my lower back. Now, this is not a catastrophic injury. Thousands of people suffer this every year. Yet my ruptured disc shook my world. The Lord used this injury to draw me closer to him. It was the gift of hedges. As an endurance athlete, I couldn't deal with the injury. I descended into a deep depression and terrible anxiety. The gift of spiritual poverty and the gift of desert. This can't happen to me. Only weak people have depression. You can't be a Christian and have emotional problems. Really? I've learned otherwise. This dark period in my life was, was and still is, though, a great blessing. It's the gift of Him. Depression and anxiety take you to the very limits of yourself. Limits you can't handle alone. And this is when the blessings begin. The Lord moved me to reach out to Him and others for healing. And this was foreign to me. First and foremost, my family drew near. My dear wife, Marcia, my daughters and their husbands. I learned from Dr. Lure that help is available and medication at times is a necessity. And then my dear friends, Marty and Linda Murphy, reached out to help walk uh, with me through this valley of the shadow. Next, a phone call to Jackson, and his words were these, I will walk this path with you. And it accelerated my healing, and he's been walking with me for 13 years, shoulder to shoulder. The wisdom of David Roper and his example of humility and support was dear to me. Most remarkably, the Lord brought Corbin Kuklinski into my life, and two deeply wounded individuals developed a healing relationship. Corbin is completely healed now and at peace with our Savior, and my turn is coming. Three years ago, in a routine checkup, they found bladder cancer, and after four surgeries and and an experimental treatment, my cancer is in remission. During this time, family and friends, the church, has held me up. Nine months ago, I suffered a heart attack, and again, family, friends, the church has held me up. You see, Christians misinterpret the scripture about the Lord never giving you more than you can handle. That scripture is speaking about temptation, and we take it out of context. I find the great blessing in suffering is that the Lord will allow more than you can handle. He will always give you more than you can handle. Because He wants you to draw near to Him and to the church and to reach out, to humble yourself and depend on others to admit your need for support. I am blessed because the Lord has taught me that I can't handle this life on my own. His love and the love of others is the root of all healing. To quote David Roper, God continues to shape us. He carves off anything that doesn't look like Jesus. Thank you.
Thanks, Mark. Love you, brother. See, God knows that nothing other than he himself can satisfy our hearts. So he gives us the gift of hedges, the gift of poverty, so we'll give up seeking life in things other than him. So you hear stories like Mark's or stories like Johnny Erickson Tata, who at age 16 became a quadriplegic and yet has testified many times she would never give up her wheelchair for what God has done in her life. Or as Tom Manning talked about those who come, have come to the tuberculosis clinic in Jordan and they've ministered to and who have received Christ and they say, I'm so glad I got tuberculosis. It hurts. But God gives us the gift of poverty to draw us to yourself. And the third gift he gives in this passage is the third, therefore, the gift of the desert. The gift of the desert. Verse 13 ends that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. She describes, Hosea describes the valley of Achor. Achor means difficulty, pain, struggle. And God wants to make the valley of struggle, our struggles, a place of hope. So God says, I will seduce her. I will allure my people and take them into the desert, into the wilderness. What's a desert? It's where everything's dry. Nothing flourishes. There's no sign of life. Like the Sahara Desert, nothing but sand. Hill after hill after hill. And so you're stripped of everything else except you and God. Here in the desert, the clamor of the world, the clamor of all your other lovers, all the gods that keep calling out to us and say, trust me, trust me, follow me, pursue me, gets stripped away. And when God takes you into the desert, there's nothing but you and God, and it often takes getting into the desert before you can hear him speak. And he says, I will allure her, take her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly. To her. Sometimes it takes reaching a place of achor, of trouble, of hopelessness in anything in this world before we can begin to trust God. There, there's something about our hearts that they are so wayward, there's such a bent that we don't trust God no matter how hard we try until God strips away everything else and there's nothing left but God to trust in. That's what the desert can do for us. And some of you are in the desert today. You've lost a loved one, perhaps. You've lost a job or some other form of security. You've been hit with an unwanted divorce or an IRS bill or you're just plain living in a spiritually dry environment and you're losing hope. And maybe you're not in a desert, but odds are you'll be in one 
some point. Because God loves you enough to take you to the desert, the dark place, a place of maybe depression, where there's nowhere to turn but to him. God's taken me to several deserts at times. One that jumps out at me because it was one of my first was when I was in a ministry that was going well, felt successful, I was encouraged, I felt good about it. It was my first ministry. And then everything blew apart. And I was broken. I couldn't find a place to minister. I was discouraged. Ended up taking my family, three kids, my wife, moving in with my parents. Talk about reaching bottom. It was humiliating. But you know, in that place, I began to hear God in a new way. That's what the desert will do for us. And all these gifts, hedges, poverty, and the gift of desert are so that God can give us the fourth gift, which is himself. God longs for us to trust him. God longs for us to know him because that's where life is. So listen to verse 16 and following. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Down to verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This is a beautiful picture of restored intimacy. When we finally learn to turn from other lovers and and free to receive the greatest gift, which is this covenant intimacy, this steadfast, loyal love from him that he longs to give us. So he says, I will betroth you to me three times. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. It's a beautiful picture where we can call our Lord my husband, where he can bless us freely. And a betrothal, uh, Derek Kidner, the commentator, says this, a betrothal is a a new beginning with all the freshness of first love rather than the weary patching up of differences. God wants to betroth us so that it's fresh and new and we're delighting in his love and we know how much he delights in us. His mercies are new every morning. And then that last little phrase in verse 20 is so important. And you will know the Lord. Now, that's a broad word, to know. But in a marriage context, to know is a description of sexual intimacy. Now, I don't think God's being crude here, but I think he wants to describe the most intimate act that we can have with another human being, with our spouse, and say God wants that kind of knowing with him, that we may be so delighted in him and close to him that we will know, truly know the Lord and have the kind of wonderful intimacy with God that surpasses any kind of intimacy on earth as we're stripped from our other lovers and learn to focus on him alone. A good question to ask is, how well do you really know the Lord? How well has he consumed your heart? 
Do you really delight in Him as more valuable and more important and more wonderful than anything else on earth? And if not, then it's a betrayal that your heart still needs to be stripped of other lovers. Mine does. And then in verse 23 is a complete restoration of the covenant. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. He shall say, you are my God. And then in chapter 3, we don't have time to read it, but God comes back to Hosea and says, Hosea, go back and remarry Gomer. She's run away, she's an adulteress, but go back and marry the woman who has broken your heart. Now, some commentators think it may not be Gomer. Her name's not mentioned here, but I think in the context it has to be Gomer. And so Hosea does it. He goes back and marries Gomer, takes her back, buys her back, because now she's living as a prostitute, buys her back and secludes her for many, many days so that she can learn to love her husband alone. It's a beautiful visual aid of what God does with us, how he's bought us back And now he secludes us with these gifts of hedges and poverty and desert so that we will be stripped from everything else and learn to love him and delight in him alone. Brothers and sisters, God loves you so. He loves us so. And he longs to give us real life, real delight in him. But but he knows how wayward our hearts are. He knows we have to be stripped of our false gods. He knows we have to be stripped of other lovers that have taken our hearts over. So let me encourage you and me, each of us, to not despise the discipline of the Lord when he gives you hedges, when he blocks your way, when he gives you poverty, when he puts you in the desert, to see it as the hand of God who delights in you, who wants to give you more and more of himself. John 17:3 Jesus prays to the Father and he says and this is what our heart delights in and this is what he wants to give us eternal life. John 17:3 says and this is eternal life, Father, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You see that's life. It's knowing Him. It's being stripped of everything else because He loves us so much so that we might learn to delight in the one who first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, how great is Your love and how wayward are our hearts. We confess we've pursued other lovers because we've been lied to And we believe the lies that somehow we need things other than you. Thank you for your love. Help us surrender to your love for us and your process in our lives so that we might learn to love you and you alone. Amen.